Do you ever feel like your faith is far from perfect? You know, we serve a, a perfect God. He's got perfect standards. Uh, our love for Him should be perfect. Our faith in Him should be perfect. Uh, but yet it's not. Our standards are not God's standards. Even no, no matter how much we, we strive to uh, live up to God's standards, we, we fall short. No matter how much we try to love God, our love is weak, faltering. Our faith, same thing. It's not exactly what God deserves from us. And so we live our lives with this imperfect faith, with this, this imperfect love uh, for God. We sort of, I don't know, mess things up from time to time. You know, if you're a uh, a new believer in the Lord, or if you've recently come back to following the Lord, um, I've got some good news for you that in a decade or so, uh, after you've followed the Lord for about a decade, you're going to be so much wiser then than you are now. And, uh, and that's, uh, that, that's a really good thing because uh, when we begin to follow the Lord, there are things that, um, decisions that we make. And um, mistakes that we make in our lives, we make in our faith, uh, that years of having the wisdom of walking in Christ, we might not make those same decisions later. Uh, if you grew up in a godly home, you grew up in a godly family, you have an advantage that a lot of other people don't have. You got to see with your own eyes and hear with your own ears uh, the experiences of other people walking with the Lord, and you got to live out their experiences and their wisdom in your own life. Um, but a lot of people didn't have that, don't have that advantage, and uh, they come to the Lord uh, being maybe the only one in their entire family who had come to the Lord. And the reality is that no matter how long you've been a Christian, we're all prone to make mistakes, to make errors in judgment, to make bad decisions aren't we? You know, we, we have this imperfect faith that is a part of us, uh, that we strive to do our very best, but we have this tendency to fall short. Well, there's a guy in Genesis chapter 12 that I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. A guy in Genesis chapter 12 who did not have the advantage of growing up in a godly family. And uh, when he began following the Lord, it was a very brand new experience for him. And his faith was far from perfect. And this guy's name, of course, was Abram. We're journeying through the book of Genesis, and we've come across this character named Abram. And uh, today, what we're going to see is what God does with people who have an imperfect faith. What God does with people who make bad decisions. You see, Abram, to give you a little bit of back, about his background, Abram uh, grew up in a family that worshipped idols. Uh, he grew up in a town called Ur, a city called Ur, and that city was very well known for its idol worship. And his, so his father, Terah, was an idolater. Uh, they, they grew up in that city of Ur, and, and he was raised there. And so when the Lord finally spoke to Abram. When the God of the universe, the true God, spoke to Abram, this was a brand new experience 
for Abram. It was something completely unexpected. And what we read in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, we're going back just a, a little bit into last week's passage because these words that we read, especially in the first three verses of Genesis chapter 12, are very important words, very important commands, and really a promise that God gives to Abram. And so we read in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, And Yahweh, that's the Lord, said to Abram, Go forth from your land, and from your kin, and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. And in verses 2 and 3, we have the promise, really multiple promises connected together. Uh, promises from God. God says to Abram, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then in verses 4 through 9, we get a little bit of geography. And so I'm going to read these verses. I want you to see the map, if you can see that on the screen behind me. In verses 4 through 9, we read, So Abram went forth as Yahweh had spoken to him, and Lot, that's his nephew, went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go forth to the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. And Abram passed through the land as far as the side of Shechem to the oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. And Yahweh appeared to Abram and said, To your seed I will give this land. So he built an altar there to Yahweh who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel. And he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to Yahweh and called upon the name of Yahweh. And Abram journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. Now, that's the last we hear about Abram's journeys to this point. Abram went on south to the Negev. And uh, the Negev area is very much a desert. It was probably a mistake. Probably a bad decision on Abram's part to continue south past the land of Canaan, into the Negev. Now, why did Abram go further than God had really instructed Abram to do? We don't exactly know. We do know that there were Canaanites in the land of Canaan. Uh, the Canaanites were not just one tribe, but it was a, a really a collection of different groups of people that were already there. Maybe Abram was a little bit intimidated. Maybe Abram was sort of an, uh, 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 someone who just didn't like his neighbors. I don't know. But he, for some reason, we don't know, Abram continued south to the Negev, and, and the Negev really is less populated because it's a desert. And so it's not a very habitable place to live, but that's where Abram went. And so then we come across today's passage, beginning in verse 10, a couple of decisions by Abram. And we read in verse 10, Now there was a famine 
in the land. Well, really, you live in a desert. There's a famine in the land. You know, who would have guessed that? But, the, but to be fair to Abram, there are seasonal or really generational types of famines that hit that area. And uh, when it hits that area, it hits it pretty hard. And so even if Abram was in the, the land of Canaan, which is more, much more green, a lot more water, the famine may have been there as well. Uh, but nevertheless, there was a famine in the land in verse 10. So Abram, here's what he did. Here's what he decided to do. He went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. This was definitely a mistake. This was not part of God's plan for Abram to go to Egypt. Abram should have believed the Lord when the Lord said, I'm giving you this land, the land here in Canaan. He should have trusted the Lord, that the Lord would have provided him through the famine. But instead, he went to Egypt. Now, when we go uh, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, you'll discover that when people go to Egypt, when God's people go to Egypt, it's almost universally a bad thing. Egypt represents the world. Egypt represents this spiritually. Egypt gives the impression of salvation. Hey, we're here. We're going we're to save you from the famine. It gives the impression of salvation, but actually it leads to oppression and slavery. Egypt is like the old Roach Motel. You can check in, but you're not going to check out. Egypt will get its hooks into you. Egypt, the world, will get its claws into you. And so when you and I, spiritually speaking, go to Egypt, when we partner with the world, when we think that the world's solutions can address spiritual problems, and we partner up with the world, we have this mistaken idea that, hey, we can leave whenever we want. But we find out, unfortunately, many times too late, it's not quite that easy. Egypt will trap you. And so the world will always welcome you into its environs. The world will always welcome you into its embrace. But Christian, the world doesn't want to let you go. And Egypt is like that. Egypt does not want to let you leave. And so when Abram went down to Egypt, this is really a foreshadowing of what would happen to Abram's children, Israel. The people of Israel would go and be slaved in Egypt as well. So Abram went to Egypt for relief, but he should have stayed in Canaan, where the Lord had instructed him to be in the land that the Lord had promised him. Then we read this in verses 11 through 13. And it happened, as he drew near to entering Egypt, that he said to Sarai, his wife, Now behold, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. Men, by the way, let me just say, if you have married a woman much more beautiful in appearance than you, you're not the first. What an incredible blessing it is. Abram thought at this point in his life, it's going to be a curse to me. Her beauty is going to kill me. 
They're going to see how beautiful she is. They're going to know she's my wife. And they're going to kill me so she's a widow. And the Pharaoh or whoever can have her. So this is Abram's plan. He said to Sarai's wife, Now behold, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And it will be when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me. But they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that it may well go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. Abram told Sarai, his wife, to lie. Now, later in the story, in Genesis chapter 20, we find out that it was a half-lie. In fact, Abram and Sarai were half-siblings. They shared the same father, different mothers. And you might think, well, that's gross, that's strange, you know marrying your half-sister. And in fact, God forbid that, God forbade that by the time of Moses, but Moses isn't around yet. At this point, it was acceptable uh, for that kind of relationship to occur. And so we find out in Genesis 20 that this is a half-truth. It's not exactly the truth. It's not exactly a lie. But here's the problem. The problem is Abram's not trusting God. Abram's not trusting God. What did God say? The one who blesses you, I will bless. And the one who curses you, I will curse. If Abram had believed that, he would not have felt compelled to ask his wife to lie. You see, if you trust God, you don't have to come up with schemes. If you trust God, you don't have to lie. God had promised to curse those who dishonor Abram, and that's eventually what happened to Pharaoh. Look at verses 14 and 15. Now it happened. When Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Verse 16, therefore, he treated Abram well because of her. I mean, Pharaoh thinks that that's that's just, you know, this guy is just uh, her older brother. And so Pharaoh treats Abram well because of her. And sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels came into Abram's possession. But, verse 17, Yahweh, the Lord, struck Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Abram had a lack of faith. Abram was, I would say, fairly young in his faith. This was a misstep, a couple of missteps. Abram had a lack of faith. But God was still faithful to keep his promise, to curse those, to curse Pharaoh, who had dishonored Abram by dishonoring Abram's wife. By the way, you'll notice in verse 17 what Sarai is called, Abram's wife. 
This passage never says that she's Pharaoh's wife. Why? Because she's not. When God says a certain thing is a certain way, that's the way it is. It doesn't matter if the king, the government, of all the world, it doesn't matter if Reader's Digest or whoever else says things are a certain way. If God says it's a different way, it is the way God says it is. What God thinks a thing is, that is what it is. And Sarai, all this time, remained Abram's wife. Well, we don't know the details, but somehow Pharaoh finds out. I, I think what probably happened is all these plagues, these bad things started happening to him. And he's like, what's the reason? What's new around here? Well, it's the woman. He probably called her into the office and said, what's going on? You're not, tell, you're not being honest with me. And maybe she spilled the beans. We don't know all the details. But Pharaoh finds out one way or the other. Verses 18 and 19, we read, Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this? You have done to me. Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for myself as a wife. So now, here is your wife. Notice he, he says, your wife. Here is your wife. Take her and go. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. Somehow, Abram came out even wealthier than he was before out of this deal. Even though Abram failed to show proper honor to God and failed to trust God. And so in verse 13... We come across somebody else. So Abram, he went from Egypt. He went north, back up to the sort of the, the northeast. He went back to the Negev. He and his wife and all that belonged to him and Lot with him. Here's Lot. Here's the nephew. You ever watch a movie or read a book? Those of you that read books, no one reads books anymore. You ever watch a movie or read a book and there's this character that's sort of hanging around in the background. And you know he's going to come into the story at some point. Because he's always sort of there. That's Lot. I mean, Lot is like a bad stomachache. It's not going to kill you. But it's a bad omen of things to come. Right? And so here's Lot. He's still hanging around. And then we read in verses 2 through 4. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock in silver, and in gold. And he went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar for he had made there formerly. And there Abram called upon the name of the Yahweh. That means he worshipped the Lord. He took some time to devote himself to the Lord. Verse 5 and 6. Of chapter 13. Now Lot, who was going with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. And the land could not sustain them while living together, for their possessions were so abundant 
that they were not able to live together. Verse 7, And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were living then in the land. These characters are going to come into play later. And so we have this conflict between Abram and his crew, Lot and his crew, They've got sheep and donkeys and everything else. They all need to eat. They all need to be watered. And there's just not enough space. This is a territorial issue. And so Abram decides to defer to Lot. He gives Lot the choice of where to live. Verse 8. So Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. The word brothers literally means kinsmen. We're kin. We're related to one another. You know, Abram's appeal for peace isn't related or isn't based on some type of a mutually beneficial partnership. It's not based on some type of compromise, but simply for the fact, hey, we're family. Let's get along because we're family. It's interesting to me how, how different families either value or don't value being part of that family. For example, on my dad's side of the family, family is sacred. I just grew up knew, knowing that family is sacred. I mean, when family needs you, you drop everything and go. You go help. And so you value family. You fight for family. And on my dad's side of the family, if need be, you get in trouble for family. We won't tell any stories. But you get in trouble for family. You, you defend your family, sometimes to a, def- to a fault. A lot of families aren't like that. A lot of families, once a kid becomes 18 and they go off and they go and have their own world, uh, never again do they interact with family. Never again. It's just interesting to me how different families value or don't value the idea of being being kin. And some people don't have much of a family to call on. You know, some some people even in this room, you'd say, I don't have family. Maybe I've outlived all my family. Or maybe my family doesn't get along. And so we just don't talk. We don't get together or anything like that with family. But I want you to know, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have family. Here at this church, you become a member of this church, you become a member of a spiritual family. And so this spiritual family is not complete yet. We need more people to be a part of this spiritual family. And so I encourage you, if you're looking for a spiritual family, to become a part of of our church and you might think well I don't, I don't know if I want to be a family with all these weird people <laughs> well may, maybe not but you know our weirdness isn't complete come on we need you you know <laughs> so we're not perfect but we love each other all right so so we got we got that going for us but uh speaking of imperfect families Abram had an imperfect family with his guy Lot his nephew hanging around all the time and so Abram makes this appeal to Lot and he says in verse 9, 
Is not the whole land before you? Please, separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. Or if to the right, then I will go to the left. He's giving Lot prime choice. So what does Lot do? Lot makes a bad decision. Lot makes a decision based on his eyes. Not on what should be his faith. Verse 10. Then Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all of the valley of Jordan. That's where the Jordan River flows. That's where you want to be, right? Next to the water. So all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before Yahweh destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It was like the garden of Yahweh, like the land of Egypt, as you go to Zoar. I mean, this land is almost mythical, how beautiful and perfect it is. Verses 11 and 12. So Lot chose for himself all of the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Lot lived in the cities of the valley. Cities in Scripture are almost always a bad thing. In fact, there's only one city in the Bible that is called good and holy. It is the city of God, Jerusalem. Why are cities bad? Why are cities wicked? Because city is where evil can flourish. There's a lack of accountability in a city. You go to a large city, you don't know most of the people in the city. There's a lack of accountability in the city. There's anonymity in the city. There's the opportunity to do great wickedness and get away with it in the city. And so in the city, what you have multiplying is not just people, but the depravity of man flourishing in the city. And then you get to the New Testament. And in the New Testament, there's a huge emphasis of the good news of Jesus Christ going into the cities. Every one of Paul's letters, all 13 of Paul's letters, were written to either churches or individuals who lived in large metropolitan areas. The seven churches of Revelation in Revelation 2 and 3 were all in cities. And so... Just because evil lives in the city, we cannot abandon the cities just because evil is there. Why? The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, needs to go where the people are. Where are the people? Many of them are in the cities. And so it was no mistake by the Apostle Paul that he began to spread the gospel throughout the known world by visiting cities and planting churches in cities. But back in Genesis chapter 13, when we read that Lot decided to live in the cities of the valley, 
This is another foreshadowing of bad things to come. In fact, we read in the very next verse, verse 13. Now the men of Sodom were evil and sinners, exceedingly so, against the Lord, against Yahweh. Another bad sign of things to come. Well, then God makes a promise. God jumps in in verses 14 and 15, and here's what we read. And Yahweh said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him. So it's, it's Lot's out of the picture. It's just the Lord and Abram. And the Lord says to Abram, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land which you see I will give it to you and to your seed forever now wait a second wait a second Abram gave Lot the choice to go for everyone. Lot went east. That's Lot's land, right? The Lord says, not for long. It's my land. It's all my land. And I give it all to you, Abram to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west. Lot chose to live in the east, but the Lord vetoed Lot's decision. Verses 16 and 17. The Lord continues. He says to Abram, And I will make your seed as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth then your seed can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length, through its breadth, for I will give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and came and lived by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Abram messed up. He went to the Negev. He went to Egypt. He told his wife to lie so that she could get married to Pharaoh to save his own skin. And what does God do? God says, even though your faith is very imperfect, I am faithful. God is faithful. What does God do with people who have imperfect faith? What does God do with a bunch of struggling Christians who mess up? I'll tell you what God does. God is faithful. He keeps His promise. Now, if you're thinking... 
Oh, good. It doesn't matter what I do. I can go do whatever I want, and God's on the hook to save my neck. Let me tell you something. Yeah, you go out and you do whatever you want to do. Dishonor God with bad decisions, intentionally if you wish. You will suffer consequences. You will suffer consequences. There were consequences for Abram's decision. You will suffer consequences. But that does not change God's nature. God will be faithful to His very nature. You see, God's faithfulness is not dependent upon the strength of your faith. God's faithfulness faithfulness is based on His perfect character. And that is why you're saved. If your salvation was based on the strength of your faith, tell you what, you'd be lost right now. You wouldn't know the Lord at all right now. But your salvation, all of God's promises, are based not on your perfect faith. It's based on God's perfect character. And that is worth obeying Him for.